This is ACM ByteCast, a podcast series from the Association for Computing Machinery, the world's largest education and scientific computing society. We talk to researchers, practitioners, and innovators who are at the intersection of computing research and practice. They share their experiences, the lessons they've learned, and their own visions for the future of computing. I'm your host today, Scott Hanselman. Hi, I'm Scott Hanselman. This is another episode of Hansel Minutes in association with the ACM ByteCast. Today, I'm talking to Dr. Noriko Arai. She earned a law degree from Hitoshiwashi University and then a mathematics degree from the University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign and has a doctorate from the Tokyo Institute of Technology. And we're pleased to be chatting with her from Japan today. How are you, Dr. Arai? I'm fine. Hello, Scott. It's very honored to be interviewed by ACL. I'm very glad. We're thrilled to have you. You're working on some very amazing things right now, and you've also done some cool things in the past. I know that one of them was very popular and ended up in the news, so I want to lead with that. It was the Todai Robot Project. You created a robot that can actually get into the University of Tokyo. How would you have such an idea and come up with this idea? It's a bit long story. Is that okay? Of course. That's why we're doing the podcast. Okay. So before starting the Todd and Robert project, I wrote a book in 2010, I think. I did the title, How Computers Can Take Our Jobs. This book was born out of my academic journey. You know, that Dafir initially studied law and economics in, in my undergraduate and later delved into mathematical logic. In this book, I made two predictions. First, by 2030, half of the jobs currently done by white-collar workers will be replaced by computers. And the second was I predicted that the next AI boom would be soon been upon us, but it wouldn't be sparked by academia. But instead, it would be driven by the tech giants. These two you know, predictions were also made in the highly, you know, read in the globally best-selling Race Against Machine, but my book preceded it by two years. By writing that book, I felt that I fulfilled my social responsibility as a researcher in mathematical logic, conceptualized both computers and AI. But the book didn't sell as well as I hoped. Most Japanese did not take seriously the idea that AI would take our jobs. I became so concerned with the reaction because I was so certain and I was so confident about my predictions. I wondered how I could make them aware of that issue. So it was just before Christmas of 2010. One day, as an elevator door at my workplace opened, a young AI researcher stood before me and I just blotted out and asked, you know, do you think AI could pass the University of Tokyo entrance exam by 2020? And he replied, I wouldn't be surprised if it did. That's how we started that project. If he said, no, I don't think so, then probably I gave it up. But um, he didn't say clear no. So that was how I started the project. That's so interesting also that your 
not just doing it because it can be done, you're bridging policy and education and computer science. Sometimes people who are researchers decide to do something just because. I want to see if it's possible. But you also wanted to warn the people and let the people know so that they can prepare. This means that your research is spanning across discipline. You're bridging education, you're bridging policy, you're bridging computer science. But at, from the outside looking in, I feel maybe that academia is siloed and prevents or discourages that kind of creativity. Do you think that is true? Yes, that's true. I think so. Yes. Well, it is my nature. You know, my background in the undergraduate is law and economics. So I was so worried about the job market always in the politics. And uh, after that, I, you know, delved into mathematics. So I, but not just mathematics, but the foundation of mathematical logic and the Turing, you know, the von Neumann and all those legends are in the mathematical logic. So I felt like a member of that field. So that made me, you know, responsible to make people understand what AI is and uh, what kind of impact it would have. I just you know, feel like I, it was like in you know, a social responsibility as a member of that field. Do you feel like every researcher has that sense of social responsibility, or do you think that that's something we should make more researchers think about? Probably. I was just fortunate to secure my professor job, you know, before uh, the academia was dominated by the impact factor and the publisher Paris, you know, the mindset. So had I been five years younger, I'm not sure if I could have even landed tenured position in academia or if I could have had children even. Yeah, I understand, you know, young people, you know, tend to compete, you know, try to solve the problems for the sake of problems or technology for the sake of technologies. I don't blame them. It's just, you know, the academia is so competitive and uh, publish or perish mindset is overwhelmed. So, I, even that phrase "publish or perish," I don't like that. It doesn't feel good to say that out loud. I don't either. If I was, you know, five years or ten years younger, I might have been overwhelmed that mindset, and uh, I didn't land like me today. I don't know. You are multidisciplinary in that you have a deep background in mathematics, a deep background in law, and you know, you're focusing on your projects though are so practical and so pragmatic. You're trying to help others directly with things like research map and edumap in your projects. Is it hard to be a, a researcher and a practitioner? You know, because I feel like some academics are a little out of touch, but you're grounded in humanity. True. It just I there there researchers you know intellectually curious and innately inclined to tackle challenges you know the true significance should not depend on whether the issue will be published or on the impact factor you know so what really matters is usefulness I would say you know not the pragmatic or 
something like that, but the usefulness, the simple usefulness to the society, whether that is for society today or in the near future or the distant future, is only a matter of timing. So as a mathematician, you know, I was working for probably with the society in the future, in the long distance future. But um, I am in software. Probably I work for the future, near future or today's future. When I talk to people who are in your position, venerable researchers, I get overwhelmed at the amount of work that you and your team have accomplished and you've accomplished as yourself. You're a researcher, you're a professor, you're a director, you're a founder of various initiatives. Does the work-life balance become a challenge? How do you balance these different roles that you have to fill? Everything is like, you know, hobby for me. (laughs) (laughs) I love that though, because you're excited about so many things. So it, it is a hobby, like life is a hobby. I love to cook. I love to sew. I love to knit. And I love to work. So it's simple, you know, I cannot come up with any answer then because I, I'm interested. <laughs> I'm not that hard worker though, because I sleep like eight hours every day and, um, I cook three times a day. So I'm not that, um, hard worker. <laughs> <laughs> well, it sounds like you've found balance though. Like you're intentional and you're deliberate. And you focus on balance and you focus on life and humanity. And that informs your work. I am supposed to spend more time in writing papers, research papers. I hate writing research papers <laughs> because, you know, when I am done with, when I have already crystallized the idea I had, I, you know, just it's there so i don't need to feel like you know i have to explain people how it is it is you know because it's there and it's working if you can come to the website it's there so i don't feel like you know i have to write the papers about (laughs) but you know that's the most tedious thing i do so I, i have to do so i do but I hate writing the paper after I crystallize my, you know, research. Well, I think it's one of those things where someone has, you have to get the public or you have to get your coworker from point A to point D, E or F, and you've made the leap. And they're asking you to walk them all the way to the end of the proof so that they understand how to get there. And you're like, ah, don't you see? You can jump over here with me. Yeah, and the way that you couldn't get the public to buy the book, so you created the project, and then you got the robot to join the university and then pass the test, and they go, why did no one tell us? And you're like, but I told you earlier. Did you read the book? Well, actually, I have to make it clear. Our robot didn't cut the University of Tokyo. It passed 70% of the universities in Japan. You know, in Japan, the entrance examination is very competitive, you know, and but uh, not Todai. I'm sorry. But um, ChatGPT teamed up with Todai Robert. Maybe it is possible. (laughs) 
The difference between ChatGPT and Total Robot is that we may added our AI for English and social sciences that very similar to ChatGPT, and ChatGPT has more data set, so it must be much better. But for mathematics, it's something different. It needs clear reasoning. So for mathematics, we made GoPy, the good old-fashioned AI, from scratch. It took like six years to make the dictionaries of but do I say it? it worked quite well. Its performance was you know, incredible and unimaginable in the last century. Uh, thanks for the computers, you know, nowadays computers. It was a really exciting moment. But um, the proof that um, the, our machine produced was not understandable for humans. The machines think in their way. So, but uh, it outputs the, the correct answer. <laughs> so, so the, it, it works very differently from ChatGPT. So, so if these two, you know, teamed up, probably they can pass the University of Tokyo entrance exam now. ACM Bytecast is available on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher, and TuneIn. If you're enjoying this episode, please do subscribe and leave us a review on your favorite platform. If these team up and AIs are going to team up and very large language models are going to become better and better, are you optimistic or pessimistic? Is this a good thing for society or a bad thing? Where do you where do you fall on that? Well, that's a very hard question. But um, from what I understand, you know, this technologies will benefit like top, I would say top five or ten percent of intelligent, very intelligent people. But um, for those who very good at reading writing and understanding media literacy and already an expert in some area. And if he or she want to use the LM for his or her experience area, then it will be great. Because I myself use ChatGPT every day basis and it is very helpful for me. Not only ChatGPT, but Grammarly and the DPL and other things. But um, for those who doesn't read well or write well, or who doesn't have any expertise, then the ChatGPT doesn't know what is right and wrong. It is not trained in that way. You know, it is trained to make smooth sentences without knowing what is right and wrong. So probably those people, you know, who want to use the chat GPT made wrong sentences, you know, mistakes here and there. But uh, if he or she does not have enough uh, media literacy or literacy itself, then he would say, oh, that's great. You know, I can use this whole thing, you know, That'll be 
very dangerous or, you know, that would be very risky or costly for the society. So it's kind of mixture, you know, the probably top 5%, you know, that utilize, it has, has the skill or, you know, talent to utilize ChatGPT or other LLMs, you know, for, for them, it's beneficial. And for other people, it's not beneficial. So it's really hard to anticipate if it is bad thing for the you know, macro society or not. When I've talked to young people about it, as a person of a certain age, they say, well, you guys told us back in the 80s that you know we shouldn't use calculators on our math tests because the calculator will make us dumb. And you're just doing the same thing now to keep us from using this tool. But you still need to understand math before you get the calculator. Like The calculator doesn't just do it all for you. So I'm hearing you say that there's this base literacy that is so crucial of problem solving and understanding. And then you mentioned media literacy. Otherwise, whether you Google for something or you ask ChatGPT, your own biases may be reflected right back at you and you're going to get an answer that's not correct, you know, uh, or appropriate. Because uh, the presence of Google doesn't make everybody happy, you know. Everybody has a chance to Google and uh, search to the any digitalized knowledge, but it makes the society so, how to say, unbalanced. It is better if you, you know, look back the you know seventies or eighties, you know, when everybody reads the newspapers. During that time, probably, you know, people can communicate better, at least. And now it is so hard for people to communicate each other because they are sectioned and uh, rich people you know, get richer and poor people get poorer. So, you know, we cannot explain that um, if we can access to any digitalized, you know, knowledge with Google, with the help of Google and computers. It doesn't help people happier as a macro in a society. I'm curious, when I'm hearing your perspective on the world and how you think about these things, are there any particular mentors or colleagues or people in your life who have inspired you to think about your career or your research in this way? There are many heroes, like, you know, in my fold, you know, Chewing and Gelo and Fondo and rest of So there are many heroes. Steve Cook. I always keep eyes on Tonya Pitasi. She's uh, an ACM fellow. And, uh, you know, among my contemporaries, I always keep my own Tonya Pitasi. Well, I, and she is the first woman who chaired Stock, the Symposium Theory of Computing. Uh, that was great. And, um, I met her, I think, at, in Toronto, the Fields Institute, in 1997, I, I think. And um, she's very energetic and honest and highly talented. I, you know, and so, so, and she constantly traveled to collaborate with renowned researchers worldwide. And it was Christmas in 2000. 2000. So, yeah. 
I was spending, you know, Christmas with her, and she and me were invited by the uh, the complex day seminar held at the Princeton and Advanced Institute for Advanced Studies a Proof Complexity Seminar, and uh, spending time with her for two weeks, I realized I couldn't live like her, and uh, decided to seek for another path. One thing was, I'm not as healthy as as her. I mean, it, I'm I'm more weak. <laughs> how, how to say? I think she has a lot of energy. Tony Ann Patasi, for the folks who may not be familiar, Tony Ann Patasi is a specialist in computational complexity theory, and uh, she was at uh, she's at Columbia, and she was named an ACM fellow in 2018, uh, and she is a very energetic person. And also, I was based in Japan. And that's of far east, of course. So I thought, oh, I cannot, you know, do like Tony. So I decided to seek for another, a different path. So um, 13 years later, she grabbed a paper when the New York Times covered the story of the Toda Robot Project and brought it into the University of Toronto's Computer Science Department to say, hey, our Norika made it to the New York Times. So happy hearing that story. Do you know? She's like my compass as someone I refer to when you know checking if I'm doing the right thing or you know on the right path. Yeah, so I'm not, you know, competing with her. It's just a kind of like a yeah, she's like a compass. And so so I just, you know, check myself if I'm doing the right thing. Can I, you know, proud of myself to Tony? And that's what I, that's how I do, yes. I love that you use that word compass. That's very well said. To have a friend and a colleague who is a, a compass, they're an academic compass, they're your uh, your peer, and they're also your mentor, and they're your friend and your helper. And they're letting you know if you're headed in the right direction. And it's good to have friends like that. And also, you know, we are living in a very different way. You know, it's just so academically, you know, achieved in any ACM problem. That's not what I am seeking for, but still, she is a compass for me. Oh, that's lovely. I'm sure that she'll be happy to know that and be reminded of that as your friendship. I'm curious what skills are do you think are essential for a researcher in the AI space or a practitioner? Certainly a strong moral compass, a societal focus, but what are some some skills or qualities that someone could have in this space to be good at AI research? Be honest. And that's all. You know, because you know, those people who are doing AI knows what they are doing. They're doing using probabilities and the statistics, right? And they don't have any data set telling you what is right and wrong. And relying on the AI and big data instead of, you know, giving up the truth. You know, the AI can sometimes, you know, tell you and show you very good, how to say, scenarios, or maybe it can write a research paper for you. But at the same time, the researchers in AI must be honest. But they are using technology. They have to be always aware, limit the limitations of AI. 
in mind and be honest to the society. That's the most important thing. Sometimes when I try to explain AI to, or very large language models to like people who are not in the field, I say that it's like a sock puppet. You know, you put the sock and you say like, hello, hello, but it's your arm, it's your hand. You're talking to it and it's going to come back and reflect to you. And if you're dishonest with the model, you will receive dishonestly back. So I really like your focus on, on honesty and being ethical and real to these AIs. Otherwise, we're definitely in trouble. So do you, do you see that honesty in the intersection of science and policy and politics? Like, are we living in a time where everyone can be honest and science can be apolitical? It really depends on which countries you are talking about. Probably the U.S., the situation is apolitical, but um, like in Far East, like in Japan, in Korea, and probably in China, too much politics in academia, I think. And it's some not sometimes, but always wrong. <laughs> that is a problem, I think. It is really weird situation, you know, probably back in 60s and 70s. By the way, I was born on the October 22nd in 62. So that was the day that Kennedy was, you know, speaking to the public that maybe the nuclear war we, you know, occur. On October 22nd, 1962, that was when Kennedy addressed the buildup of arms happening in Cuba in the beginning of the Cuban Missile Crisis. You were born there at that time, in that moment. Yeah, that moment. <laughs> so probably I would have died, you know, right after I was born. <laughs> but uh, luckily, you know, I'm here, the year of 60. But um, at the time, probably the science was very political in many ways in many, many countries like the Soviet Union and the U.S. and China. But um, right now, it's in a different way. You know, it's apolitical in some countries and too much political in other countries, I would say. In our remaining time, I did want to ask a bit of a pointed question. I'm curious, have you faced any challenges as a, specifically as a female researcher in the field of IT, specifically in Japan? Okay, Japan ranks uh, 125th in the World Gender Gap Index. So we are behind countries like Angola and Myanmar. So it means that there's no women in Japan cruising without challenges. I cannot remember any year without sexual or power harassment when I was young. And after I was promoted to a professor, it changed to pointless criticisms. The Todai Robot Project was often criticized in Japan for being selfish. And the selfishness is a very, very bad thing in Japan, okay? And however, it is natural for researchers to choose their theme selfishly. Is that true? So that's pointless, but uh, you know, I was really criticized that I being selfish. <laughs> There's not much I can say there other than I respect your persistence and that you are still here, and we are happy that you are still here, sharing with us. And I'm very honored to have you uh, join us on this podcast. Thank you very much. We have been chatting with Dr. Noriko Arai, and this has been an episode of Hansel Minutes in association with the ACM Bytecast, and we'll see you again next week. 
ACM Bytecast is a production of the Association for Computing Machinery's Practitioner Board. To learn more about ACM and its activities, visit acm.org. For more information about this and other episodes, please do visit our website at learning.acm.org slash bytecast. That's B-Y-T-E-C-A-S-T. learning.acm.org slash bytecast.